Well, if you have a Bible, uh, grab one and get to 1 Corinthians 10. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of these black ones somewhere around the worship center here, and because we're going to be in a, a big passage tonight, uh, not just a verse or two, we want to get our eyes on God's Word and see what it says. It's a passage that is about the Lord's Supper, even though if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 11, and that being sort of the primary Lord's Supper passage, you might be thinking, I'm a, I'm a chapter off, but no, there is... A Lord's Supper passage before that in 1 Corinthians 10. Now telling those who are at a special Lord's Supper service that the Lord's Supper is important, I think is the definition of preaching to the choir. But last I checked, the choir needed preaching to, didn't, don't they? Like that saying is just a weird saying, preaching to the choir, like... Like you show up for church, and if you show up for church, and if you're committed to church, then you don't need preaching. Well, that's the world's understanding of preaching and the church and commitment and salvation, but it's not ours. And so we need lessons on why the Lord's Supper is important. We need to fight to stay committed to God's Word and to stay committed to what it says about how we grow and how we stay in Him. And one of those is... In the Lord's Supper. You see, there are many places in the Bible where there's this talk of a downward spiral. Where idolatry turns to rebellion and hard-heartedness. And then that rebellion and hard-heartedness eventually leads to what we call apostasy. Apostasy means falling away, literally. It's not that Christians, true Christians, can fall away, but there are in Scripture, and in our own experience, perhaps you know people like this, there are professing Christians who, who do forsake their profession. So our perseverance in the faith, our pressing on, our believing and keep on believing, doesn't earn our salvation, but it does evidence our salvation. So there's a warning in Scripture, repeated over and over. It's even in the New Testament given to professing Christians to guard against this downward spiral, to watch themselves so that little things don't turn into big things which turn into deadly things which turn into damning things. Scripture says to persevere. It says, Christians... Watch yourself. Listen, listen. Hebrews 2.1. We must pay careful attention so that we who've heard will not drift away. Hebrews 3.14. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end of the confidence that we had at first. Hebrews 4.1. Since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you are found, to be have fallen, are found to have fallen short of it. Or Hebrews 6, that we should show diligence to the very end in order to make our hope sure. The writer of Hebrews says, I don't want you to become lazy. Or 1 Peter 5.10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Or Philippians 2.13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or Jude 21, keep yourselves in God's love. It almost sounds heretical. 
Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. You see, it's a mystery in God's word how this works exactly. It's God's mercy that begins eternal life and finishes eternal life. Jesus said, of those who come to me, I won't lose a single one. Again, no true Christian can lose their salvation, but there are all kinds of professing Christians who think that they're true Christians. Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Yes, depart from me. I never knew you. They believe that they're Christians. And by not persevering, they prove that they never really were. And so true Christians have the responsibility, though assured of the genuineness of their faith, they have the genuine responsibility to press on because that's what true Christians do. Again, perseverance doesn't earn salvation, but our perseverance does evidence it. So according to 1 Corinthians 10, the Lord's Supper is a powerful antidote to fight off idolatry and rebellion and apostasy. The Lord's Supper is part of God's prescribed concoction of good things that keep us in a good place. Hebrews 10 talks about coming together as a church being one of these things. I won't go into it right now, but Hebrews 10 says that we should be diligent to meet together. And we should do this, it says in the next verse, so that we don't prove that we've given up on this thing. Coming together as a church is something like guardrails on the highway. Those guardrails keep drunks from going off cliffs. Ever seen those spots where, you know, it's a cement barricade and you can see tire tracks went up it. And then came back down. I don't know what happened to that guy. But I know he could have gone into oncoming traffic and died. And meeting together with the church is something like a compass that helps keep things north. You don't get too screwy in your practice or your theology if there's some basics with others around you and God's word being preached. So 1 Corinthians 10 speaks similarly about the Lord's Supper. It's that compass It speaks about the Lord's Supper, but it does so in a pretty roundabout way. So as we dig into 1 Corinthians 10 here, be patient with me. We'll meander around the chapter, which is mostly about idolatry. And then we'll land on this theme of the Lord's Supper and see how it all fits together. I think the first section of this chapter, we could call it something like this that we should recall the incredible waywardness and the judgment of key Old Testament stories. Look at verses 1 through 5. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the same rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. We'll stop there. Again, we can call this section here recalling the incredible waywardness and judgment of key Old Testament stories. Paul's reminding the Corinthians 
that the Old Testament saints in Exodus, he's picking on Exodus, well, 13 to about 17 here, uh, in on to about 26 actually, that these Old Testament people were saturated with reminders of God's goodness and his glory. Verse 1, he says, they were under one cloud. Exodus 13, God led them with a cloud. It was a, a symbol of his presence, if not something of his presence. Right? Fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. That's how they were led in the wilderness. It showed that he was with them. He was ahead of them. He was leading them in the way to go. They passed through the sea. No doubt referring to that time when in Exodus 14, God had freed them from Egypt and brought them right up to the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army charging down on them. Seems like sure doom. But God parts the Red Sea and they go through and then the sea crashes on the army and they're free. They passed through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses, verse 2 says. They were baptized into the cloud and the sea. A weird thing of saying, a weird way of describing the relationship to Moses. They were baptized into him, but that's how Paul puts it. And then he says in verse 3 that they ate of the same spiritual food. No doubt referring to Exodus 16, the way God provided for his people in the wilderness with manna coming down every morning fresh, just as much as they needed, even more so. They ate a spiritual food. It was real food, but it was special food. And they drank a spiritual drink, he says in verse 4. Remember the time, Exodus 17, when they need water in the desert, and where do you get water in the desert? Well, God can do this. He can... Get it out of a rock. He can have Moses split it open. Moses doesn't really know how to split open rocks, but, but God does it through Moses, and the water comes out. And as a picture here, Paul says that rock was Christ. They drank in the wilderness of a special water. Now notice this. Baptized into Moses, ate spiritual food, drank spiritual drink. Baptized food, drink. Does that sound familiar? Did you catch that? It's a little tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? I think Paul's going out of his way to connect the experience of the Old Testament Israelites with the New Testament Corinthian Christians, and by extension, you. He's using baptism and Lord's Supper language unnecessarily. Right? I mean, you know I believe that God gave us those words just like it's here in, in God's Word, at least the original manuscripts. So when I say unnecessarily, I mean it doesn't seem like Paul needed to say that the relationship with Moses was a baptism relationship. They were baptized into Moses? Or that the way he emphasizes food and drink there, I mean, it seems like he's getting at what we would call the sacraments or the ordinances. He's hinting at that. So just tuck that away. We'll come back to it and see what he's getting at a little bit later. But now read verse 5. In light of all that, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. God wasn't pleased with them because they rebelled. That's amazing what goes on from here. Look at verse 7. We'll skip to there. 
He's now saying to the Corinthian church, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This referring to the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. He's reminding them of the Exodus story and he's reminding them of the people's waywardness, their brazen, bold, persistent waywardness despite God's amazing, near, glorious goodness right in their midst. Again and again, breathtakingly, they rebelled against their God. Look at verse 8, not just with idolatry in verse 7, but immorality in verse 8. We must not indulge, Paul says about the New Testament church, in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. You heard that right. Guys slept around, and God took out 23,000. Presumably all. That's in Numbers 25, if you'd like to read it. Some, it says in verse 9, put God to the test. It says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. By putting them to the test, I think Paul's referring to those times when they doubted God's goodness, they doubted God's ability, they doubted God's wisdom, they doubted whether God uh, was actually involved his control. That's Numbers 21, where they put God to the test and God destroyed them by serpents. Then look at verse 10. We shouldn't grumble as some of them did. No doubt referring to Numbers 14. Maybe Numbers 16 as well. Both places there talking about how God's people complained and God wiped them out. So idolatry, immorality, putting God to the test and rebelling against him with grumbling and they were destroyed by the destroyer. No doubt that's a pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, the destroyer. I think the next section though, we could call it something like this. We should learn fearfully from the Old Testament examples of rebellion. Learn fearfully, fearfully. See, that was what verse 6, we skipped over verse 6, that's what it said. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That's why God gave, gave it to us. That's not why it happened. He had other reasons. God's always doing a thousand things at once. But one of the reasons that happened, and one of the reasons it got recorded, and one of the reasons it's been preserved to this day in even English translations is so that we would have these things as examples. Look at verse 11. It repeats it again, in case you missed it in verse 6. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul's highlighting the special place that we have in God's redemptive plan from Genesis to Revelation. It's amazing what we have. We have so much Bible. We have so much revelation to lean upon. Not to mention that we have 
a, a unique empowering of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant, that we have God's law written on our hearts in the New Covenant in a way perhaps that it wasn't in the Old. But we're still persistent in sin, blind to our, our pursuit of it at times, blind to our idols. You see, we sometimes look back at the Old Testament and we marvel at their brazen blindness to the Lord, even though he was so near. Remember? He was a cloud. They were baptized into Moses. Right? They had spiritual food. God was raining bread. I've never seen that. It's raining moths right now out there. That might be part of the one of those curses earlier in Exodus, but he rained bread down. They saw the curses in Egypt. They saw the Red Sea. They walked through on dry ground. They saw all that. And they complained. And they went and slept around carelessly. They went and made a golden calf to worship while Moses was up on the mountain talking to God a mountain that was shaking and glowing and smoking from the presence of God they saw all that and they turned to a stupid golden calf and they partied around it it's unthinkable And it's even all the more shocking that we would know all that and so much more and we would look to idols. Idols of our own making. That we would abandon our God even temporarily. That some would abandon their confession. We have so much revelation. We have so much written down. We have so many examples And one of the ways we benefit from the Old Testament is that we see how the true hope of all these stories is Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of them all. Yes and amen. But no small way that we also benefit from these Old Testament examples is that we should should be afraid. There should be some measure of sobriety and fear that they were that close and they left it. They, they were baptized into Moses. They were under the glowing cloud at night. They were the ones who scooped up the angel bread. They were the ones who drank water from a rock. They're the ones that walked on the dry ground of the Red Sea and they turned away. So these Old Testament examples God has given to keep us from idols, to keep us from immorality, to keep 20-somethings who are single and getting close to marriage or thinking about engagement from sleeping together. These Old Testament examples are there in part to tell you, don't! No! We don't do that! No! The Lord who shakes Sinai says no! No! 
and keep your mouth shut when it's not going so well. When that person bugs you and you want to complain. Because you think your grumbling is just horizontal. But so do the Israelites in the Old Testament. They thought that they just didn't like Moses. And they grumbled to Moses. And Moses said in Exodus 16, Your grumbling is unto the Lord. And then the Lord killed them. Now verse 13 is a kind of parenthesis in the flow of thought. Look at it. You might be familiar with this. Maybe you haven't memorized. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. I think this serves two purposes. It gives comfort. He won't test you. He won't put you in the desert without manna, without a rock that waters. He won't put you in a situation that's beyond your your ability to obey. He won't test you beyond what he can strengthen you to endure. That's comforting, but it's also, I think, an important reminder. It removes any excuses that would blame God for our sin. Right? It's a comfort. He won't take you further than you can go. But it's a warning. You can't blame him for your sin. You can't say he's tested you too hard, too far, that you couldn't have done otherwise but sin. Now we get into the first century context in 1 Corinthians 10. The third thing, if we're following along in in an outline, would be something like this. Consider the modern cultural examples of idolatry. So Paul fast-forwards from the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, into first century Corinth. And he turns to their culture, their time, and their struggles. So look at verse 14 now. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Remember, this is all in the same vein of what he said before. Therefore, because of all this, flee from idolatry. Then skip to verse 18. He says, There, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Hear that, participants? He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. He'll explain what he means here in a second. He says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So I don't want you to be participants with demons You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul's saying, look around at your context, Corinthians. You know that situation you're dealing with about idols? You know this from looking around at idols. Those who partake of idols share in all of idolatry just like those who partook of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant and the food that was available after the sacrifice, partook of the altar, partook of of God, in a sense, in his ways and, and his purposes. What Paul's talking about in first century times, 
is classic idolatry. We could call it it's real statues, it's real sacrifices, it's overt worship, it's burning this thing in front of this statue god, it's service to this idol, making it happy, not mad. But today we don't really, you know, in America, have that kind of idolatry. We might call ours heart idolatry, not statue idolatry. Ours is probably more advanced, it's more sophisticated, it's more messy, it's it's more sneaky, but it's not something just for ancient Near East cultures or third world countries today that really burn something in front of a statue. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory no matter where it lives, no matter what age it's in. Every one of us, he said, from our mother's womb are experts in, inviting, in inventing Idols. We all invent idols. Some look more technological than others. Some look more romantic than others. Some look newer than others. But Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that's your God. So whether we're talking first century or 21st century, idolatry is simply the inappropriate devotion to something. We should be devoted to wives, we should be devoted to kids, we should be devoted to work. But there's an inappropriate kind of devotion that turns that devotion into godlike devotion and it's idolatry. Idolatry, whether it's 1st century or 21st century, always is superstitious. So you think, this will work, this will bring me happiness, this will empower me, this will bring success. It's a God replacement, in short. And the principle is always the same, whether it's 1st century or 21st century A.D. The principle is this, you become like what you worship. That's Psalm 115. We sing it sometimes. Everyone who makes idols will become like them. You won't be able to hear, even though you have ears. You won't be able to see, spiritually speaking, even though, even though you have eyes. You won't be able to move, even though you've got arms. Spiritually speaking, you're, you're bound, just like a dumb idol that can't move off the mantle. Greg Beale, in his book on idolatry, says, What we revere, we resemble. Either to our ruin or to our restoration. So we were made to reflect and resemble what we love and admire. And at first this was wonderful and right because it was God. We were made to rejoice in Him and reflect Him. But in sin and judgment, it means now that we worship and reflect anything but Him. And so idolatry's rule is essentially God saying, Oh, do you like idols? Here, go ahead. Idols beget idols. The downward spiral. So look around your world like Paul did with the Corinthians in their time. And don't you see beholding leads to becoming? Don't you see that sharing, that's the way he puts it here, right? Sharing with these idols, with these sacrifices. Sharing leads to shaping don't you see the bondage of our modern day idols? Don't you see the empty promise of 
idols of any age, how costly they are, how sneaky and alluring they are, how almost demonic they are in that people get real dumb when they go too far with idols. One more thing to say about this chapter, at least the first half of it. The fourth thing is know how the cup, the Lord's Supper, works against idolatry. Now, there are two sides to the Lord's Supper coin in 1 Corinthians 10. I hope you're not tired yet. I said we would meander about idolatry and then land on how the Lord's Supper helps us fight idolatry, rebellion, and apostasy. I think there are two sides to the Lord's Supper coin in 1 Corinthians 10. The first is that the Lord's Supper is not a magic pill. That was the point of those earlier verses where, where Paul was saying, you were baptized into Moses, sacrament. You, they ate, they drank, right? He's talking sacrament there. Baptism, Lord's Supper. Those tongue-in-cheek terms there were showing that Paul was saying, remember the Israelites, they were in deep. It's like they were baptized too. It's like they had the desert sacrament of manna in rock water. They had every reason to think they're safe. They had God's glory cloud above, fire at night. They saw Sinai. They had every reason to trust him and think that they're in good with this king, this God. He parted the Red Sea. And that after ten mighty plagues in Egypt. They saw a lot of glory. They heard a lot of truth. Not unlike the Corinthians. The Corinthians had been baptized. They'd been partaking in the Lord's Supper. And so Paul's saying, Hey, Corinthians, don't simply look to your baptism. Don't simply trust in last month's Lord's Supper. Let everyone, verse 12, let everyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So one application of the Lord's Supper is that itself, it doesn't keep us in. It's not a magic pill. You don't show up, take it, be blessed, go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. It requires faith as we partake it. It takes eyes of faith to see what it is. It's not a pill. That's one side of the Lord's Supper coin. The other side of the Lord's Supper coin going on in 1 Corinthians 10 is apparently some were downplaying the importance of the Lord's Supper and missing this, that the Lord's Supper is a powerful antidote to resisting that downward spiral of idolatry, rebellion, and apostasy. So now let's look at some verses we skipped. Look at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And here's Lord's Supper stuff. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. And we all partake of the one bread. 
So then, go down to verse 21. So, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Why? Because our God's a jealous God. See the earlier verses. You're not stronger than him, are you? See the earlier verses. Ask the 23,000. Ask the complainers in Exodus 17. The Lord's Supper is a powerful antidote. Looking back to the Old Testament and seeing its examples, yes, of course, we say this more than anything else around here. Yes, look back to the Old Testament and see Christ as the fulfillment of it all. See Him hinted at here and hinted at there, promised there, foreshadowed here. And it all comes to fulfillment in one who's stronger than you. Stronger than me. But look back to the Old Testament too and see examples of people God wiped out though they thought they were in. They were close. They were with Moses. They were, they were freaking with Moses, man. I mean, that's big. Right? And God took them out. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall, Christian. Look back to the Old Covenant. Look around at crazy idols. When you partake of those idols, you share in them and there's bondage to them. Look back, look around, and look down. Look down at Bibles, yes. And, but here in this passage, the focus is look down at the bread. Look down at the cup. Stare. At the cup and see Christ. See him. Don't not come. Don't partake lightly. Don't come and think it's a pill. But don't think there's some other thing, some other way in which God works in your life, he works in simple means like church getting together, singing songs, opening Bibles, and breaking bread. It's been the same for 2,000 years. He's still using the same stuff apart, apart from strobe lights and smoke and all kinds of gizmos that a lot of churches offer. We come together to behold because beholding means becoming. We share, because sharing means shaping. Now, finally, the title of this message makes sense. I should have mentioned that earlier. You are what you eat, sort of. You are what you eat. God gave us this meal to shape us into the image of Christ. So how does this cup become a powerful antidote to fight off idolatry and immorality and doubting and grumbling? Because, boy, we, we have all those here. We have all those here. In spades. I have them all here. In spades. And the cup shows us what our Savior died to give us covering. It shows us why he came, that he lived perfectly. 
shows us the hope is outside of ourselves. It shows us in this meal the work is finished because he's not here. This is a memorial, remembrance, meal. He's not here. He's risen. He's ascended. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. He's victorious and he's still working. He's interceding for us. That and about, a, about 75 other things that I could bullet point right now are what the Lord's Supper shows us. It shows us wonderful things, antidotes that help us fight off idolatry and immorality, doubting and grumbling. And don't just do those things. Don't fight those things simply because God says to fight for your life. Because those who are his fight for their life. Only to know all along it's him who gives life and him who keeps life. To him goes the glory forever.